My name is Phil Denton. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you yeah. regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to Phil Denton. Yeah, my name is Phil Denton. I'm a, a, a head teacher, I suppose, to start off with. Um, and uh, that's in a school called St. Bede's in Ormskirt. Uh, I suppose most recently I've just finished writing a book with uh, Mickey Mellon. And uh, that's all about the first 100 days of being a, a football manager and uh, it's what the business and education world can learn from that. So it's got quite a good uh, readership from sport, business and education, which is great. Um, and as well as that, I'm a, I'm a big Tramia fan and a father of three kids as well. Uh, so probably in the, in the wrong order of explaining who I am, that is uh, who I am. <laughs> Hello and welcome to you, the listener. It's been a little while, but we're back. We're back and raring to go and I'm joined by... The main man who's pumped and ready to be in your ears. It's Ant Olsen. I have done my lunges this morning. You have. I saw you doing them. Oh, you've got to get it ready, haven't you? That's it. You've got to stretch. From the off. First whistle. That's it. You know, you don't want to come into this unprepared. No, no. You know, we've maybe lacked a bit of pre-season. Exactly. I've got Neil Warnock's words ringing. I want to beat Plymouth so fucking much, (laughs) lads. Are we playing Plymouth today? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) How are we, mate? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Yeah, it's been a a couple of weeks since we've been here. It has, mate. Um, We're now behind the mics once again. Yeah, I feel like uh, the the cast of Greece coming back to school. Yeah. You know, we've had a bit of summer love in the Euros and now we're we're back, ready to... Never actually watched Greece. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, we can discuss that later. <laughs> well, it's kind of like, you know, one of those things where, like, everyone always goes on about Greece. Yeah. Like, it's like, comes up all the time, and then you're at a wedding, and it's always on, and people are like, oh, I love Greece, let's go. <laughs> and I'm always like, just, just dancing from the just, chair. Just Ooh, yeah. really don't want to watch it, and I don't know why. I love a musical, mm. but I just, I don't. Yeah. Okay, well. And I feel like it's gone too far now. Oh right, okay. So now you're just being hipster. Well, no, it's not so much <laughs> like that, though. That though that is right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost like I don't want to watch it. Like I, it's become a thing now where it it irritates me. Okay. Like I feel like I've watched it without having to watch it. Uh, yeah, well, because it's such a cultural touch point. We we could maybe arrange a date, just get it over and done with. All right. <laughs> we're still talking about Greece. Um, we are recording today on, on Sunday morning. Listener, you are listening on Monday morning, presumably. Or, you know, it, available anytime. Yeah. This isn't BBC Radio 5 Live. No. Because if it was, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a bit We long. are open to offers. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we're recording on Sunday morning in the in the wake of Emma Raducanu's win. I'm so happy you said her name properly, Danny. I'm still convinced it's a ch, 
not a K. If if we were in Romania, I think it would be a Ch. Yeah, it's up for debate. Anyway, yeah, that. Uh, that I don't was... know any Romanian. If there are any Romanian people who are listening, yeah, um, prove Danny wrong. I will give you ten pounds <laughs> to, prove, to prove me right. Um, but yeah, we are obviously in the in, in the day after a yeah. uh, stunning victory at the U.S. Open. We were we were both watching it. We were exchanging WhatsApp messages as it was happening. Yeah. Brilliant, wasn't it? It was. It was. Um, it was amazing. I, I mean, fair weather tennis fans, aren't we? Really? Don't like, know what you're talking about, mate. I was. I was there in there. Uh, I, I go sort of grassroots level sometimes. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the lawn tennis club up yeah, the road. Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah. So pretty much fair weather tennis fans, and what you need as a fair weather tennis fan is a is a British person oh, yeah. in the final, and that always helps. I and think, she was really good. Yeah. I mean, I I've watched a bit of tennis over the years. The two weeks of Wimbledon is oh, yeah. normally get about right it. involved. Normally about it. Uh, you know, it's on in the, in the afternoons and stuff. And it's on all day, isn't it? You just dip in, bloody, dip out. It's lovely. Oh, you yeah. Know. Um, so, I remember women's tennis not being that exciting, to be honest. That was really good. I remember Christ. It, but it But it was... It controversial. Was, but it, it, it was never like that. It was like Serena Williams just dismantling people. Yeah. And then well, that was really competitive. I think what was, what from certainly from, as you say, fair weather tennis fans, you remember kind of... The, 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 the bigger players so mm-hmm. in the men's game obviously for a long time we've had Nadal, Federer, um, Djokovic and Murray who've been pretty much winning most of the the the, uh, the major honours for years and then in the women's game the two Williams sisters Sharapova and if you don't then watch a lot of tennis I think from what I can see a lot of the women's titles have gone to various different people there hasn't been anyone who's dominated like there has in the men's game and so sometimes it's hard to kind of grasp onto something isn't it yeah, absolutely yeah and i think particularly when it's i think there's a number of factors that make this really really exciting and, and and a really like interesting story obviously there's that element of it i think the fact that they were both teenagers in the final and they're both clearly extremely oh, like mate. talented just quality of tennis on show even for someone who doesn't really know much about tennis i know <laughs> looking at going that's, that's pretty good but i think the fact that i think emma raducanu is a really good example of multicultural Britain, oh, yeah, what absolutely. Britain has become and what some people will tell you well, is on both on both sides as well, wasn't it? Both, uh, well, both exa- exactly, yeah. And I think it was it was just it was a really good exam. And you also have loads of Daily Mail Daily Mail readers who are now completely torn. <laughs> 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 get them get them back unless they're good at tennis. <laughs> so it, it, well, it's it's uh, for a number of reasons I thought it was it was brilliant. And she's so likable. Yeah, I've never seen someone so happy. Well. Uh, like yeah. do, do you know one of those things? You know where like you can't stop. You physically can't stop smiling because whatever the thing you're smiling at is just like you're just completely overwhelmed by it. They were like she was getting passed around between media people and like you know, I'd go stand there with it and I'd be like fuck off and leave me alone. <laughs> I just want to sit me trophy. I want to fill this with Corona and drinking. <laughs> um, not allowed in America though because too young. Oh yeah. But um, she was just grinning and going around, being very polite and saying hello to everyone. I thought that's lovely, now. Nah. Yeah. I and obviously she got to the. Fourth round of Wimbledon, mm. and then had the had the issue, the breathing issues, and and everything she, that she came had a, out. She had a uh, panic attack, didn't she? I, be, I believe so. Yeah. So and everything that came out after that, you know, fe- Pierce Morgan. Yeah, that him being an arse, and to go like a couple of weeks later, like a couple of weeks, a couple of months later, and just go and win a tournament. Yeah, exactly. Don't drop a set and be like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sound nice one. I'll take the trophy, yeah. and I'll take that two point five million dollar check oh, from I mean, you, I JP were, Morgan. Was it, someone said, how American is it to give him the money before the check trophy? Before the trophy. 
quality. I saw it in our what I put it in our WhatsApp group, and then about ten minutes later, somebody tweeted it, eight thousand likes or something. Ah, you missed, like, out missed, missed me chance. They could have yeah. been trending. Yeah. While you're here, please <laughs> listen to our podcast. <laughs> anyway, obviously we 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 kind of touched on um, Emma Raducanu's who's kind of turning around from what happened at Wimbledon back into there, and I, I think what he has shown is a lot of leadership, mm. which is obviously something that we're going to be discussing today with with Phil Denton, and Phil is. Uh, the uh, the co-author the author of a book with Trammy manager Mickey Mellon which is called the first hundred days the first hundred days which you've read I have read and yeah. you've uh, been filling us in on uh, what's been going on and yeah. obviously you then what thought it would be good for us to speak to Phil and get him on the show and so we did so do you want to kind of give us an idea of how this interview came about Ant? yeah I was uh, I was on holiday actually and um, I uh, I was sitting there and, and up pops a little DM into our uh, As they do, and it was uh, it was Phil saying he, he wanted to get in touch and he wanted to do stuff. He was doing stuff with um, with Chris Kirkland at his school, St Bede's in in Ormskirk. Uh, Phil's a head teacher there, and his idea was to try and get the the young lads moving and and talking and, and being able to uh, being able to be more comfortable in themselves within mm-hmm. the school. It's something that we touch on in the interview that you're going to hear. Um, but yeah, it was a bit it's a bit odd because normally we're pestering people to, oh, yeah. to to come on the show in a nice way. And um yeah. <laughs> Sometimes a high press. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so Phil got in touch and kinda I had a little phone call with him and he was he was very interested and came on and he was really lovely, wasn't he? I, he I think was. he was a he's a top fella and then um I went well. We were all meant to go, but a, oh, yeah. a few of us got stricken down with with other things. And there was a l- some late fitness tests yeah. that went past. Uh, we went to the to the book talk uh, the other night with him and him and Mickey, and that was really really interesting. And um, yeah, it was just great to to hear them both talk about the book. Which, yeah. and they and they talk about it with such a passion mm. as well, which I think is you can tell it's a passion yeah, project, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which is why it's it's really good and it is really useful yeah. um obviously you'll 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 hear a few more things about it in the interview but yeah and it is a really useful book anyone who, who needs like little bits of information of how to lead people yeah. or just how to deal with stuff in your family yeah you can trans you can translate it so easily There's two things there um one was i forgot to mention that ryan isn't here oh yeah which you kind of <laughs> just reminded me of um ryan if you're listening uh, we hope you're feeling better. Ryan has been struck down with the COVID. Yeah. Um, seems to be doing all right. We're getting a lot of videos of him playing piano. Yeah, he's getting um, good at that as well. Um, well, he's getting better. We couldn't. It was a low bar to start with. Well, better's on the way to good, isn't it? So I suppose do. so. But yeah, uh, Ryan, we hope you're, you're feeling better and we'll be welcoming you back onto the pods when your quarantine has ended. Yeah. Um, him and Gianni LaCelso will both be here. We're going to get a big quarantines. plastic screen off. We could get him in like one of those big balls that Bart Simpson is in <laughs> on that episode. Uh, and then the other thing I was going to mention was on that, at that event on on uh, Wednesday night, uh, we got a book signed, one oh, of the, yeah, one of the did, a copy yeah. of the book yeah. signed. Um, so we'll be doing a little bit of a giveaway competition on Twitter, which we'll give you the details of at the end of the episode. So you literally have to listen to all of it now. So, yeah, yeah. You, you which you would have done anyway. Yeah, obviously. Because great stuff, isn't it? Great content. Absolutely. Um, and we always have a theme. We always have a theme, don't what is, we? What's the theme then? The theme today. We've gone simple, but simple, effective. Easy. Pass we'll, out to the fullback. That's it. Clip yeah. it up the line. Mm. Um, the theme today is leadership. Mm. This book, obviously, a lot of it is about leadership. And we'll go on to talk a little bit about how that works and what it is that they're talking about. And you'll hear it in the interview today. And then we'll pick up a little bit on the on the other side. And that's that's our theme. 
And if you pick up anything that we haven't or anything you want us to discuss on the podcast, then you can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man, or you can drop us an email, manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so I'm going to now hand you over to Phil Denton, and then we'll see you very briefly on the other side. Enjoy. You're listening to Man Marking. We normally ask people why they'd want to give an interview to us because it's not that we're shocked that they're giving an interview to us. We just like to know what they think. But if you could just tell us why you'd, you'd agree to an interview with us, that'd be great. No, I was really keen to speak to you because I think that the, the message that you, you, that you have in the podcast is is exactly what we're trying to do in school. So um, we noticed in school that the uh, a lot of our girls, we have different pastoral systems. So we have year leaders, we have a pastoral manager, we have a chaplain because we're a Catholic school. And it, it, it stereotypically tends to be the girls that go to the support networks to get um, help for whatever's going on with them, whether that's things inside school, outside school. And the boys do go, but it tends to be when the problems got uh, out of control. So it tends to be that they, they, are, they, they, they repress the, their emotions and don't talk about things in the same way that, that um, girls would do. And again, it's been very stereotypical, but it's something that I think needs to be um, recognised. Um, so we decided we needed to do something about it. So I got in touch with um, Chris Kirkland because he lives close by to the school. Um, and, he, and he has had some involvement in terms of his, his goalkeeping school before and asked him if he'd like to come in and speak to some of our boys. So he did. He came in and we had a group of about 12, 16 um, boys that we wanted to to be ambassadors, really, because we thought, well, if they speak to Chris and come out and say that actually it's positive to talk about the sort of things that Chris talks about and they share that with their peers, then it gives that that bit of credibility amongst the, the students at the school, especially the boys, that uh, we are encouraging boys to talk about things in their life that don't have to be at a crisis point, but things that um, are, are concerning them. So we thought, right, we'll get this group together and, and they'll leave and it'll be something positive that they, they might be able to talk to others. Uh, what we found is that when we got um, this group of boys and any group of boys subsequently, the sort of things that they opened up about and talked about, the things that we had uh, uh, in many cases no idea about, that, and, and they up they would say, actually, I haven't said spoken to this about anybody. I've not talked about um, the pressure of the exam season coming up that I'm really feeling. Um, I've not talked about the way that I feel about my body with my friends because it's not something that we would talk about. And what Chris is amazing at, he's, he's, um, he, he, he's, he's so authentic in, in the way that he wants to work with young people and anybody really, really around the issues of mental health. It's, it's because he tells his story first and it's quite a, um, a, a, a compelling story, especially for boys, because he, 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 he would seemingly have everything that anybody would want. You know, we had that career in football where he reached international level. He's at Liverpool. He's still got the connections with, with uh, the national team and, 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 it, and Liverpool and, and Sheffield Wednesday and all the other clubs that he played for. That, that's a lot of boys' dream to be able to go on and do that. And to have all that kind of external status 
and yet still have these issues that that he 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 he's still I mean he's very open about it. he still continues to to deal with um, is is a really compelling story. So when he came in, to, spoke to the boys, and the boys opened up about their experiences, we thought, right, we've got to do something about this. We've got to actually now get a program together where it's not just a one hit. So we got um, uh, we put a whole program of activities which centre around um, walking and talking, which is a big part of what we do, and um, football training. Um, so this is like the big group activities. So we've got um, walking and talking, group talk, football training. We have various other things that they do that, that can be anything really, that just get lads together to talk about the, 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 um, the emotional state. And we put them in situations. So the football training we did with somebody called Nathan Rooney, who's a manager at Colne um, and worked for Port Vale as well. Um, and uh, he led that. It was a really quality football training session but interspersed with sex sessions where it was right let's talk about pressure and how we deal with pressure as young men how do we deal with pressure when does it come to us you know you had that pressure on the ball then how did that feel with people shouting at you and, and it's those sort of things that I think can be something which are, are, is really groundbreaking for boys across the country and it goes from that kind of large group thing so we call it like a graduated response so it goes from a big group to a smaller group where we do things like art therapy um, and small group talk. And then it goes to the to the very top level, which is one-to-one, -one, which we, we, we work with a, a group called Orpheus Mind Technologies that do uh, percussion therapies. And we also do one-to-one -one art therapies in there as well. So you imagine a bit like a pyramid where you've got everybody involved at the bottom with various activities, with, with, with things that just encourage to get them talking. Then you've got the small group work, then you have the one-to-one -one work. And what we want to do is get this so we can roll it across schools across the country. It's not, not for financial benefit or anything yeah. like that. Not for the school, not for Chris. Chris does, gives all his uh, money to charity and food banks, things like that. And we're looking to just develop a program which can be really successful and, and be something which is a catalyst for change. Um, and then what we found is, is if people come forward and said, yeah, that's great, but what about college? And what about life after education? We need something nationally to help with that too. So we're hoping that we can take this as a bit of a starting point and then move it on from there to, to get it something that is for all age groups. That sounds, do you know what? That sounds really, really good. And it sounds like a, like you've identified kind of a bit of a, a massive gap really in, in education, especially where these young lads need that help, need that space football in school is, is such a massive thing that you know i'm in mean, sports as well and even even other little activities out that's the fun bit about school isn't it it's not the science classes it's not maths it's not history i know you were a history teacher i'm sorry to say that um but it's it's the fun activities outside it isn't it that make school that's what people like young kids enjoy so to use that as a as a vehicle as we say many a time on here to get people to talk a little bit more is, is such a really good thing. So I really hope that that goes as well as it possibly can. And I hope you, you can get that spread across the across the country, to be honest. I think that is is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that's great. yeah, we're trying, yeah. we're trying to do it. We, we're already getting schools from, we've got one school from Cornwall, we've, we've one closer by in St. Helens that have shown interest. We've got a documentary that's coming out uh, in a month or so that was filmed um, all about it. We've got people like Neil Meller involved in it, who's been really uh, encouraged by it. 
Um, my, Michael Kinsella at Tramia was been involved in it, and we had uh, Jamie Acton, who's a rugby league player, whose career was ch- uh, cut short by injury. Who again had to had to deal with that things too. Um, just great people, and what we're, we're hopefully going to create kind of a network of support with with people who develop apps and um, and, and speakers like Neil Mellor, people like that, um, to to really get something which is a which is a, a real catalyst for change for for, for young boys and, and 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 men as 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 they go beyond school. I think that's brilliant, Phil. Uh, I just want to start at the beginning of your uh, your career in education obviously you said you were a you're now a head teacher um and i made a little bit of a joke about you being a history teacher to begin with what was it that made you initially get into teaching yeah it's it, it, just today actually i was uh, i went into um into manchester with my two boys and we, we were looking for somewhere and we went past an old office that i worked in so i worked in an office in uh, lever street in manchester and they said, wow, you know, look at that office. And I said, I, I couldn't stand it. Um, I like the people I worked with. They were great. But I, uh, the sound of the photocopier, the, the, uh, just the, the day-to-day life, it just wasn't for me. Um, and I realised that I probably wanted something which was all action in, in my day. Um, and I worked at an outdoor centre in the States, like before, during and after uni, when I was doing um, history and uh, media and marketing. And... Um, that was when working with young people became a real uh, uh, passion just because of the energy that they bring. So that's what took me into teaching. Um, and then I never really looked back from there, really. I, I think it's the sort of thing that's a vocation. You know, with the first day that I walked into a school, I did a graduate teacher program. And the first day I walked in, the energy in the place, um, the, the, the dynamic nature of your day, you know, no two days are the same. Um, and it just it's like a drug really Um, so you you either love it uh, and there's lots of people that do that stay stay in education or you hate it and and then people leave and the worst case scenario is people hate it and they stay in education because then they don't know what else to do but um, I I just I I love I love working in schools I I think they're the most uh, vibrant uh, environment to work in Um, so um, yeah that's what, what taught me to it and then um, from beyond there, I, I kind of uh, started to progress through different levels with um, various opportunities in various places, and that's led me to be to be a head teacher. So obviously, you you swap sending passive aggressive emails in an office to go and be a teacher. Pretty much, it, it is it's daunting. I, I I tried to do some teacher training and gave it up after a few months. It wasn't really for me, and I was very very aware of that. So when you go into that classroom first time, what challenges are you facing there? Not just, I mean, it's not just the, the people in front of you, it's fitting in, in in the workforce as well, isn't it? It can be really quite tough. You hear, I mean, there are some shockers uh, of stories that you hear. What kind of challenges are you facing there? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I don't think it's something that's talked about very often, but when you do go into a workforce, you... you um particularly in an environment like teaching, it, it is very different from anything else you've worked in. Um, they tend to be quite tight-knit communities. Uh, so you have to uh, take your time and fitting in and seeing the, 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 the culture of the place, the way people behave, what their values are, um, and then gradually sort of settle in. So my, my first experience was at a school in Wigan called Fred Longworth. And um, you do kind of find your tribe. I was listening to... Um, 
uh, a podcast by uh, Simon Sinek this week with uh, with a professor called Amy Cuddy, and she was talking about tribes and how you kind of find find your tribe in whatever environment you go into. So I went into the humanities department and, and really like the people I work with, but my my tribe were the PE department, and uh, so I started playing football with them on a Friday after school, and they made they made the experience fun. So I had kind of my history colleagues who were, who were great, you know, but they were very experienced professionals. They helped me with my lesson planning and things like that to kind of get up to speed with it. And then the lads in PE that I got friendly with, we, we got that work-life balance, um, uh, got, got that right, I would say. And so it was a really, it was a really uh, enjoyable, enjoyable year, which, which is really important. You need some allies when you go into teaching. You need to find people like you who you can relate to you can say, yeah, you're going to find that class difficult to begin with, that you will, you know, there's no getting away from it. You're going to find that that student really difficult. He's going to test you. But if you stick with him or if you try this, then that could improve things. But, you know, you find your tribe where you work with and, and then you can sort of learn to work with other people. And then working with children and there's nothing like it, standing in a front, front of 32 children, um, there aren't many tougher audiences than that. Um, if... Uh, and usually they, they, they can sniff out, you know, when you're, when you're a little bit unsure about things or you're not quite sure what the rules are and, and those sort of things. And they will just test you because you're close, you're usually close to their age. So they think, well, you know, you're only a few years older than me. So who are you to tell me what to do? Um, so there can be challenges there. But again, it, it's, um, it, it's something when you enter a new workplace, I think you've just got to, understand the culture, understand the, the way that people behave and then try and stick to that. And eventually you do settle in. And with teaching, it, it, your second year is an awful lot easier than your first year because then you are no longer the new person there. You, you, you're settled and established. And they know you know what the rules are. So <laughs> you can uh, you can sort of establish yourself a bit more. So that first school you go to is in Wigan. How do you end up in... Saudi Arabia to teach. Yeah, well, that was it was a it was a, a funny moment really because uh, I did my graduate teacher program in Wigan and uh, Tilsley, which is kind of a, a, a on the outskirts of Wigan, and it's it's its own um, environment in its own right. Tilsley, um, wonderful as it is, and um, uh, at the end of your graduate teacher program, there was no job at the end of it. It was a training placement, and then there was there was no job, there was no vacancy. So um, I uh, applied to lots of different places and I can't actually remember applying to this website, but I must have done. And on the website it said, click if you want to work internationally. So I clicked it and I, I remember being sat and was sharing a house at the time in uh, Manchester. I clicked on it and said, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'd work internationally. I've traveled a bit before. Um, and then I got a text message from the company saying, would you like to run work in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia? So um, it was a quick kind of run upstairs to the PC and, and Jeddah and uh, Saudi Arabia. And there's not much you can find out about it, particularly um, 15 years ago. Um, and it was that mystery of it, really. I knew somebody who'd worked in Saudi uh, and they gave me a pretty nice report about it. Um, so um, we, we uh, uh, I spoke to my parents about it and, and they said, uh, yeah, you know, go for it. So that was it, really. That was it. That was how I ended up in Saudi Arabia through a, through a website that I can't remember can't remember applying to. So did you go over there on your own, yeah? Yeah, initially, and then my wife, wait, she wasn't my wife at the time, but joined me a year later. 
So oh, nice. uh, he joined me a year later. So it was great. It, it was uh, it was some experience. I mean, it is one of those where you, I'd, I'd always recommend it to people because you, once you, uh, if you get the opportunity and you've not got the um, the commitments at home, it's a great opportunity to go and work abroad. Um, you, you just see, you, you meet so many different people and you get such a broad perspective on the world um, that sometimes if you're just in a bubble, you know, we all get stuck in those bubbles in our workplace and home lives. And you think that the most important thing is somebody taking all the paper out the photocopier and, and annoying you at work when, and it, and it still can feel like that. But if you've had that experiences of, of different places and different cultures and different people, sometimes you, you think, hang on a minute, this is not the most important thing in the world. And uh, there are other things going on at this moment in time. I think it depends on the outside factors, whether it's raining on a Tuesday and, you know, Dave down the corridor is taking the paper out of the photocopier. That's really annoying. Uh, <laughs> but you go from being in a, you know, an office job you don't like, and then within a few years, you, you go into Saudi Arabia from living in Wigan, living in Manchester. They're two vastly different cultures, aren't they? I mean, did that take a bit of time to get used to when you were over there? Um, Saudi, so not not especially because it was it's like a compound culture. So there's a school, and then you you are um, you're on a compound. So you're working really with people, expats. So I had um, you know friends from South Africa. There were quite a lot of English people there. Um, it was very hot, which is great um, all the time. Um, and you know the the I, I I think it probably took me a term to to understand. Um, the difference between expat life and the Saudi life, because that's the two very different things. And I was very fortunate that I made quite a lot of Saudi friends. You know, you can live in Saudi in an expat community and, and not know any Saudis or not really be friendly with any Saudis. Um, but I, because of football, really, I, I played football in the local community. And um, I, so I met quite a lot of Saudis and, and, and kind of integrated myself into it, into the, into the culture. Um, but yeah, it can, it takes time. I mean, it, it I, I suppose it depends what your anchors are. I mean, my, I, I've oh, be, because I've travelled quite a bit. I'm quite I was quite used to not needing to be certain about everything. I think, um, but it's a good question. I, I, I think yeah, it does depend what your anchors are. If you're used to, you know, going shopping at a certain time of day, and that really throws you off because you can't. You know, it's a different time. You know. You, you tend to shop later at night. Uh, you tend to the, the the eating times are the same. I guess the the schools were, were, was quite similar uh, in the structure of it. What I was teaching the timetable, um, but certainly the um, the cultural differences were probably more with the expats. And even though you speak the same language, uh, you know English and in the, the South Africans and like the South African and the, the British cultures are very different. I'm getting used to that and it not being something that you think, well, why are they behaving like that? Um, and understanding it uh, is, is something that probably took more time than working with the Saudis did because you expect Saudi culture to be a lot different because it's a different language and, um, you know, different different um, cultural um, behaviours, I suppose. But you probably imagine South African and um, Australian cultures to be very similar and they're not, but there is quite a big difference in them. So I think that was probably a bit of cultural um, um, acceptance, really. 
what was the uh, Friday night five-a-side power league like in Saudi Arabia then? Yeah, well, it, it was um, it was it was fantastic. So we used to play uh, Monday night, but quite quite often we'd play at 11, 11 o'clock midnight um, wow. because of the heat. Um, and uh, they were really technically very very skillful um, and very good at seven aside. Not not as great at, at eleven aside, but it was fantastic, and, and they loved it that I was playing. They loved it, you know. They had this. Uh, <laughs> This old, old English brute come over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to play sort of in defence. So they, 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 they'd say I was the only people in the world that ever say I was like Rio Ferdinand. They'd be like oh, Rio Ferdinand or John Terry at the in defence or somebody like that. But no, it was great. And and again, you, you saw those cultural, cultural differences in the football. So, but it was it. But yeah, I loved it. I loved it. It's amazing how football can just include you when you're so far away from. It's like a, like a bit of an international language, isn't it? Just to be able to do that. It is, yeah. It's, it is. It's, it's, it's really quite astonishing, to be honest. Yeah. So you come back home, anything that you brought back home with you, like kind of skills that you'd learned, you know, obviously you go over there as a, a very fresh young teacher and you come back over again, come home. What did you, what did you gain from that experience? Um, probably more from, uh, I, I got a lot of responsibility. I had a brilliant head teacher um, who gave me loads of responsibility quite quickly. Um, so that was, um, that was really good because I, I, I moved on and got um, roles that, that were like a head of house. So I was in charge of quite a large number of children and staff. So that was great. Um, but outside of school, I, um, I started coaching 10 children um, football. And then that led to me coaching we got we got really popular so long story short i eventually had a, a club called Jeddah city football club that i set up from nothing from those 10 kids and we had 250 kids a week seven coaches um and i went through did my uefa fa badges and the uefa badge um and had a, a semi-pro team that we used to play tournaments wow. in Jeddah. i was coaching them and and then it was kind of a, a choice that we played um, Aliti had reserve team and we nearly beat them and Aliti had a, quite often the Asian Champions League finalists and the, the, the team that we pulled together and the coaching style that we had was drawing a lot of fantastic players so um, we did a couple of tours in the UK with them um, so it was, it was a lot from outside actually it was actually, it, it was probably more entrepreneurial things than the, than the education side of things but definitely the leadership aspect of it and getting that when some when somebody shows that confidence in you, like like my head teacher did, uh, Paul Hay, he showed a lot of head, uh, confidence in me, and that um, that really gave me impetus coming home to take on more and more responsibility. I can imagine that's a, a completely different thing from. I mean, obviously, we've mentioned it a few times now that that photocopying office or, or what, the office that you worked in. I can't imagine that was a place where it was a creative environment for you to, to go and get that leadership and go well, actually this is what I can do no no you're quite right yeah it was um it was it was a bit it was a sales and marketing job so there was quite a bit that I didn't really believe in what I was selling because I didn't mm. think it was value for money for the people I was selling it to but that was what I, I was I was kind of asked to do um and I could see what I thought I they should be giving me time to do but I think at the time um, I probably didn't have the confidence to go to the to the management in it and actually say, do you know what? Um, I'm selling the wrong thing here. I should be selling that. Um, but I always think things happen for a reason. You know, if I had gone and done that, then 
then I might not be I've gone into teaching because as soon as you get hooked into money and you know you buy a house or you buy a car you think well I can't drop wages now because I'm because I've got these commitments then that that would probably be the wrong thing to do but yeah you're quite right that if you if you're in a job that you are unhappy with it's an awful lot of time to spend in that role Uh, and if you are a creative person or you are somebody who likes to to support other people then um, you, you could be in a really wrong job if you're in somebody where you're chasing that chasing other people um and, and i found that as well I, one of the things from that job in manchester that I, I i made a kind of pledge to myself was that i wouldn't have a job where i was chasing other people um for business or you know I, I, and then i had to go in i don't know i suppose a little bit of selling your soul every day where you, you're trying to get somebody to buy into something that you're selling which is, I suppose, a bit counterintuitive when you stood at the front of the classroom trying to get 32 children to buy into the Norman Conquest and why it is of use to them in their future life. But, yeah, maybe those skills came in useful later on. <laughs> I can just say it now. You're getting all 32 kids signed up to that. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. And obviously, when you come back home, I think I might skip a few years here, but obviously you're head teacher at... Uh, now in, in a Catholic high school, St. Bede's in Ormskirk. Uh, it's an amazing achievement, that, by the way, because I think to get to the top of of the ladder, I, I, I assume it is. Um, it, it is fantastic. How did that role kind of come about? Yeah, well, it was um, it, it was a secondment initially. So I, I went for a headship, uh, another headship in a school um, where there was um, a really strong candidate who got the job. Um, and because of my interview, um, uh, I got asked to go on a secondment while another, the head teacher at St. Bede's was going to work over two schools. So I got asked to go in there for, for 12 months. Um, but it was quite clear at the beginning that there was a good chance this might turn into a permanent role. I, well, it was, I, mean, I thought it was. Um, so um, that, that was how that came about. And then I had an interview and I was, it was a really open competitive feel like, but I had an interview and I was up against somebody else. And then managed to to get the headship at St. Bede's, but um, um, that was, I suppose, the springboard really for me was um, uh, I was on a program called Future Leaders, which was uh, a government-run program to try and get more heads um, um, and and develop young heads through a through a specific program. So I was on that, which gave me a lot of experience and uh, and professional development um, that helped me get to that point, um, but. I, 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 yeah, it's very nice of you to say. I mean, it's a it's a real um, privilege to be a head teacher. You know, it's um, it is incredible how your um, uh, your decisions can affect the course of a year, and how your your mood in the morning can affect the course of a day in school. You know, you, you, it's it's incredible, but it's a wonderful job. I mean, I, I, I love it. I really do love it, um, and it's something that um, I'm I'm really grateful to do every day. So just going back to that like kind of interview process for for the job obviously interviews are, are they're more difficult than they should be i mean obviously you were talking about selling yourself before and it's not really it feels like it's not really a british or english trait that that anyone really does and the ones who do it are really really successful um and it's kind of like i feel personally i i struggle with it it's kind of like a learned habit was there anything that you leaned on any words of wisdom that you leaned on for that interview it's a i mean i can imagine it's a it's a huge interview at the time so is there anything that you kind of drew upon for that 
Yeah, well, my the, the interview for a headship, I mean, they all vary, but mine had lots of different components. So it had like a data to, an, an, um, data analysis task. It had um, leading a meeting with uh, a group of uh, senior and middle leaders, pupil panel. And then it, those are the, the funny ones because they just throw you left field questions. Um, and then well, there were lots of stuff like that. And then at the end of the day, there was an unseen one. So it was uh, a case of we went to a room and they said, uh, right, in 15 minutes, you're going to deliver a five minute speech to all the staff about your vision for the school. And you've got 15 minutes to prepare it. So um, that <laughs> actually, um, it wasn't that daunting because I knew what it was before. Hand, you know, like I, 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 I could tell you what what my idea was. So I think for any job, um, the important thing is to know, to be sure that you want it, you know, because if you go into an interview situation, you don't really want it, it can be uncomfortable. And then conversely, if you really, if you go into something and you are really focused on saying the right thing, you can again try to almost read a script that isn't really you. So the only bit of advice that I um, I would suggest is it is, and it's probably the most difficult is is be yourself, and don't take don't let the outcome of that interview define you. You know, if you are in a in a position, if that that's easy. Like I was in a job that I loved. You know, I I, I loved where I was before, and I would have gone back there which made it easier. But if you can be at ease with yourself and be at ease with your life as it is, then that comes across in an interview. If you come across and you're desperate for it and you think my life's in a state and if I don't get this job, then it's going to get worse, then that comes across. Um, but if you can be at ease with yourself and authentic and say, look, this is the, the reason why I want it, this is the reason why I think I can add value to whatever the role is. Um, but it's up to you to decide whether you think I'm the right person for here. Then you can walk out of there and, and deliver it, I think, in a, in, in a confident manner. Um, but that's really hard to be. And I think that's, you know, going back to the purpose of you, the podcast is being at ease with yourself is one of the hardest things to arrive at, being comfortable in your own skin. Um, it can be the most challenging thing to get to. And if you're not yet comfortable in your own skin, then finding a way to do that is, um, is, 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 is probably the biggest obstacle we've all got to overcome. And, and it's not something you just do and then that's it. It, it can come and go. Um, yeah, so certainly that would be, that would be the, the bit of advice that I would lean on is, is try to be yourself um, and, or be the best version of yourself, I, I should say. Mm. Um, because my, you know, being myself what I'm like on a, on, a, on a Saturday afternoon watching Tramere is not necessarily the way to go and win over a, a group of parents that you're trying, <laughs> these children you're trying to lead. <laughs> uh, I can imagine. Is there anything like, so, you know, when you're you're sat there and you go and be yourself, is there any like little little techniques that you, you kind of use just to remind yourself, actually, I, I, I'm okay and I'm all right. I, I can, can get through this. I know a lot of people use like little breathing techniques or, even, you know, when they ask that horrible question, have you got any questions to ask at the end? Yeah. And they have like a little piece of paper, but it's blank and they just kind of blag it. 
Yeah. Like, oh, no, no, I'm all right. Don't worry. Kind of thing. I think one of the best bits of advice before I went was um, I spoke to a colleague of mine. And uh, I suppose it depends on the role. Um, When it was that sort of a role, uh, the the first interview I had with her were 24 people on the panel. And that can sound quite daunting initially. But he said to me, don't forget, you'll know more about this job than anybody else in that room. So make sure you talk to them like that. You know, not in an arrogant or a conceited way, but you know, you're talking like you know what they need. You know what the situation is um, as well as, if not better than most of them. And when there's 24 people on a panel, there's probably two or three decision makers at the very most. You've probably got a number of people who don't know what's going on and who are just there to, to make so that they're being included. Just to get the tea and biscuits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then you've got um, and then you've got people whose opinions are, are, are a bit peripheral. Uh, now, my second interview, when I had the interview at St. Bede's, that wasn't really the case. They were, the, the governors are really strong and we had people from the, from the Archdiocese as well. And the questions that they came around were all very pertinent questions and good questions. But you can probably, um, you can probably predict them. But the, so the techniques that I use are really prepare so you are confident with, with what the role is um, what you think you've got that they need, you know, so your unique selling points. Uh, what is it about you that makes you a bit better than everybody else? But without saying that, you know, without comparing yourself to somebody else, but saying this is the thing that I've done and, and, and letting them work that out for themselves. Um, and, and when there's questions, I, I tend to use a STAR model. So it's a situation, ta- um, situation, task, activity and result. So you're always finishing off with, you know, if somebody says, um, um, how, how good are you at working with people? And then you can I, I kind of go back and think, right, let's think of a situation that I worked in, a task. So what did I have to do? Activities, what did I do? And then what was the result at the end of it? And that structure helps me get through the questions. So you can take a minute and you're thinking, right, let me think of the situation. And then it kind of flows through and you're finishing off with a point at the end of it. So your, your answers don't kind of ramble on. Um, so I, that that though that's one of the strategies that I use to answer questions, um, and then the other part of interviews is tell people a story, because because the people listening, everybody wants to be able to understand what you're saying, and they've all got different backgrounds that they'll come from, no matter what the interview is. So if you can give, um, if you can tell people a story, particularly in presentations, and take people on that journey with you, they're all waiting for the next bit rather than them thinking, right, what was the question again that they asked. So I think a structure answering questions like the star structure and then also taking people on a journey with each answer. So you, you, you're, you're leading them along with you is, is another strategy that I would use in interview situations. That sounds perfect. I might give that a, give that a bit of a go next time I get an opportunity. Um, just moving on, obviously you said uh, you are the author of the first 100 days uh, lessons in leadership from the football bosses. Uh, it's not an audio feature but it's the book I've been reading it it's very very good Um, was leadership first of all is this the best thing to come out of Stevenage because obviously this was a a meeting of minds with you and Mickey Mellon in a hotel gym in Stevenage on the day Tramie got back into League 2 which was a great day 
it was nice and hot, lovely weather, two-two draw, brilliant goals, some great football. Um, yeah, is it the best thing to come out of Stevenage? Uh, well, it was for me. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. And, and, and Mickey and I are really good friends now. So uh, yeah, fantastic. I mean, I'm just the same as uh, as, uh, as as both of you. You know, I'm a big Tramia fan. So. Um, meeting Mickey in the first place was great to be able to thank him for, for getting us out of the National League and, and everything he's brought to the club. But then the more we spoke, I mean, I've listened to him talk um, and I really like the way that he connected with the supporters. And I, I was intrigued with the language that he uses to, 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 to tap into the emotive, the emotional side of, of the, the supporters. Because like we were saying about interviews, football's emotional and it's narratives and it's stories. And that's why we love the football clubs that we love because we get sucked into that um and yeah speaking to him was great really interested to talk to him um and the more we spoke about football management and being a head teacher the more we thought we could learn from each other so it was great when he asked me to come in um to, to work on something with him to come into the club and do things like that that was fantastic and he and, and I, since then he's very good at that he's very good at drawing people um, into the club that he thinks it can add to add to his own learning or add to the team, uh, and he continues to do that now. So it's fantastic. Um, Stevenage Old Town's very nice though. I don't know if you uh, just came down the coach and headed straight back. We had a, we had a really nice uh, night out because I managed to trip my wife to go, uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was quite it was quite nice actually. So I was just going to ask actually, obviously that the friendship is seems to be kind of a bit of a an instant success. Did. Was there any kind of moments, because I do this with, with footballers now and I'm 28, it's really silly. Were you a bit nervous going up to, to speak to him or were you quite comfortable and like, oh yeah, he's just over there on the cross trainer or something? Well, I, I was already in actually and then Mickey just came in and I was only in there, so it, it would have been a bit awkward. Not <laughs> so um, I, I just said, morning Mickey, I'm, I'm, you know, I introduced myself and said I'm here to watch the match and then we were just talking about you know, talking about the hotel, and he's very easy, he's very, you know, open to talk to. He, he's definitely a talker, Mickey. You know, he's uh, and he, he, he's very easy to talk to. And we were talking about that, and then talking about um, the first game a little bit and uh, the, the season before and how great it was. And, and yeah, I just went on from there, really. But there's certainly, certainly been moments along the journey where I remember um, one of the, the funniest bits was sat in uh, at Carrington. Uh, waiting for Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer to come down the stairs and there was me and Mickey, I was sat next to him and uh, I just looked at him and went, how's this happened? What am I doing here? <laughs> he, he, said, yeah, he said, I know it is a bit surreal, isn't it? Because he, he knows Mick feeling really well and, he, and, he, and he's met Ollie before. And I said, uh, I just, I've just taken this in for a second. I'm sat next to you and the winning goal scorer from the Champions League final is about to walk down the stairs and um, talked to me for, for a few hours about his first 100 days of being manager of the, one of the biggest clubs in the world. Uh, yeah, so th there was definitely that moment and, and sort of sat with Sean Dyche when he sat with him and in his, uh, in his manager's, manager's office and he's opening up about all sorts. It's, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was fantastic. And, he, you know, learning so much as well and, and them asking you questions as well. Of, you know, how, well, how did you deal with that? Um, and they were, they, were, they were really interesting in life as a, as a head teacher as well. That's brilliant, actually. Um, and so obviously the book is pretty much about leadership and it is written in a really passionate way. It's got so much information in it. And 
so many models, so many different theories. Has it always been uh, a kind of passionate subject for yourself for, for a long time, or is it just from doing this new head teaching role going forward into that? Um, probably uh, uh, when when I came back from Saudi, probably after then, um, I think before then I was very much just, I was really interested in traveling, uh, going to different places and uh, having, a, having a great time. And then when I started to really look into it, I did a master's in education, which covered a lot of leadership in it. Um, I started to pick up a few things there, like books and um, blogs and things that I'd read. Um, but then coming back and working at a really innovative school, um, again, you know, find the right place for you, find a really innovative school that taught a lot about leadership and did a lot of leadership conferences with its staff to make, you know, all the teaching staff leaders in their own right. Um, that made me really interested in actually um, the, the psychology of it, I suppose, of working with people. Um, and then, you know, like, like you were saying right at the beginning about working in the right place, I, I think when you when you can get into a position that you can that you can create a really positive culture that people enjoy working in then um, then it's something that, that then becomes a passion because you think well i, I can add some value here and, and make life better for people that come into work every day which is uh, for the students and the staff and the parents the community and all that it's a great thing to be able to do it's you're not always not also doing making life better for people in schools you're doing other little speeches delivering keynote speeches and training one-to-one work with premier league coaches to offer them support do you want to give us a bit of a brief overview of what that is yeah well sort of stimulated by the book really been asked to um work with um to do some keynote corporate speeches about about the first 100 days and what the principles of it were from like some of the models that you mentioned i'm going to share one of the main ones in that, um, or have been sharing that with, with leaders in education and leaders in business. Um, and then uh, I've been asked to work with some, some teams on developing how they, how they work as a team, how do they develop a team culture? Um, and again, applying some of those um, models just, just to help people to, to frame their thinking. Because you, you can go to some, we've probably all been to sessions, one thing or another, where you walk out thinking, well, what did I actually get out of that? So I didn't, yeah. want to, I didn't want to just go along to anything and, and people to walk out and they might not like it, but they will know what, what the point of it was. And they'll at least have a model to go away and think, right, well, these are the sort of things that are integral to making yourself um, successful or give me the best chance of being successful. So there's a bit there. And then I've been one of, um, uh, uh, I've been asked to work with uh, a coach at a Premier League club. Um, in his first 100 days, so I'm helping him walk through that. So he's a, he's a Premier League coach and an international coach as well. So I'll be working with him, literally talking through his first 100 days, helping him with the presentations that he's been doing and giving to to the players. And, um, and yeah, just just a, a lot of the time, just being an, uh, a, a listening ear and uh, asking questions, um, sometimes giving my own ideas, but most of the time it's just asking questions and helping people find out the best route for them so that, so that they can be the, the sort of authentic leaders that we've been, uh, we've been talking about. Phil, I, I, I mentioned it before, the, the podcast, as you know, we kind of use football as the, the vehicle to kind of drive the conversations that we have around mental health. And, and the book, in, in much the same way, is using football as that kind of vehicle to to transport the conversations about leadership and 
and those type of things and the theories and the models and stuff within it. Why do you think football as a as a sport and possibly more so than than any other sport in in, in this country in particular is is so good at, at, at being that vehicle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I I think it's because it's something we can relate to. Um, football's a bit like a pantomime, or a, you know, sometimes it's a comedy. You know, sometimes it's a drama. Well, a lot of the time it's a drama. Sometimes it's a horror show, um, and 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 it's that story that we all get hooked into. Um, so I think what it does is it it almost plays uh, life out in front of us like a film would do, and that's why people love it. You know, you know, you'd hear people who are interested and go, "How can you get so obsessed with, um, with, you know, twenty-two men kicking a ball around a pitch?" And they'll say that. And then you watch the Euros when the whole nation got into it, didn't they? You know, they get hooked into it because it means something. Then people attach some some sense of themselves to those players on the pitch. Um, and, and I believe that we we see ourselves, you know, we take like Elliot Nevitt at the moment, who, who just joined Tramir and, and is, um, for those people who aren't Tramir fans, he's come from the ninth tier of English football. You know, this lad is living his dream. We probably can't believe his luck that he's just become a professional footballer. And we are in the stands desperate for him to score a goal. And then he scores that goal. And, and that roar from the supporters and that passion, that was more than uh, this lad just scoring a goal. That was a bit of all of us thinking, we've all got a dream and, and this lad's living his. And we, we, because he's in our team, can, can live our dream a little bit through them. And, and at the same time, when you see um, players overcome adversity, we, we, we probably relate to that in our own lives as well and think, you know, I, I'd love him to do well because I can see a bit of myself in him too. And whether it's the story or the players, I think we we allow ourselves to to attach ourselves to a club or to individuals at that club, and it allows us just to play out our own lives. Uh, and and for many people, it's the biggest outlet, isn't it? You know, it's the biggest outlet in the week where we where we don't think about anything else other than that match. And um, certainly for me, it's it's uh, it's it's huge in my life, you know, it's, uh, despite everything else being really positive, going to that match on a Saturday is just where almost like everything you're thinking about is gone. And all you're thinking about is that game. And and, and for all those other reasons I mentioned, I think that football uh, and sport, you know, connects with, with so many people because it gives us that ability to live another life, you know, for, for a few hours every weekend. I don't think I I realised quite how much I'd missed going the match. Yeah. Until yeah. we started going again. I'd 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 um I'd kind of, you know, just sort of put it to the back of my mind, I think, you know, because you don't want to think about it because you can't go. Yeah. And then the minute that we started going again, you just remember just how I think it's a comfortability thing. I think because we've we've all been going since we were kids. I mean, I remember going with my dad when I was sort of six or seven years old. So it's it's the place where you feel comfortable, Brenton Park, and I think that's the same for a lot of football fans. How have you? How did you kind of find that the gap between going to matches, Phil, in terms of filling that void from a, you know, from a mental health perspective? Yeah, uh, well, I, I we tried to do it, but my friend and I, what we did was we uh, we'd both get the game and we'd watch it with uh, you know with like a Zoom thing on us, and we'd be talking okay. like while we were watching it. So we, we used to have a little uh, ritual between us where we'd get logged on, like somebody'd send a Zoom go, go code and we'd be watching it. And 
Uh, and then we'd usually have like a few drinks during the game and we'd be texting each other during the week going like, what are you having this week? Are you having a pie? Are you going to get, you know, so we'd try and get like match food as well. <laughs> so we, we did it that way, really. Um, yeah, so it, that that was, I, I, and in a way, I probably saw more Tramia games, especially the away ones that I'd seen any other time just watching it. But you're right, you, you, you missed that. I, I went to the Walsall game and, and a funny thing that I really, I really enjoyed queuing up for a coffee at half time. I loved it. <laughs> I, I actually waited for the queue yeah, to build up because I wanted to be in a queue for waiting for something. To, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? But that was, um, that was great. And then uh, I, I popped in to see Mickey before the game and um, just going doing that again. I'm really lucky that knowing him now, I, I drop in seeing before or after the game every now and again and, that was great too, just being able to see him and I was chatting with him and Alan Morgan while the players were out warming up and um, just all, all of it really, just as, you know, everything. And we all talk about the smell of the onions, the chippy on the way home, the the, the smell of the pints coming out of the tents and the, and the noise and music, everything. Loved it all, loved it all. I loved every bit of it. Yeah, absolutely, Phil. It was, um, yeah, it was it was brilliant. And then, and then obviously now, now it's almost like, you forget, oh my god, we get to go another like 40 times this season yeah. potentially. And it's just it just makes you feel like oh and like I during the pandemic, I my, my, me and my partner bought our first house. Um I grew up in in, in Clawton. And so we're close to Tramir, but not close enough that it's really feasible to walk to and from the ground to every every game. And then when I started going out with with Sophie, who's my, my girlfriend at the moment. I lived with her and her mums for a bit and she lives around the corner from Vicky Park. So I'd never, I was like, I can walk. I mean, I, I could walk to the games and stumble home. Yeah. And so my only contingent when we bought the house, the only thing I was bothered about was I need to be able to walk to Tramia. I said, you can pick everything else. I just want to be able to walk to and from Tramia. And our house is literally opposite the ground. Like I can see it from my bedroom window. And I'm like, <laughs> when I walked to work in the morning, when I walked to the bus stop, because of the way Prenton Park is situated with all the houses around it. Every little nook and cranny you look through, you get a little different angle of the stadium. You see a, a floodlight poking above the top of a house or you yeah. see the back of the cow sheds or a mural or something through somewhere. And it's it's been like torture for like the last year or so, not been able to go. Yeah. And, and now I'm just like a, like a child again. And I feel really happy for all the, you know, all the people who are able to go now and get excited about it again. Yeah. When you were um, when you were going through the process of writing the book, Phil, when you were speaking to managers at, at lots of you know different clubs and, and managers at different levels as well, and also from obviously spending time with Mickey, how much thought did you find and effort goes into kind of player welfare, player well-being, which is obviously a, a big topic at, at the moment? Um, yeah, there, there was um, it was interesting really at each different place. Um, there's a there's a balance to it, you know. Um, I suppose the most interesting one would be United. United have a section next to where the coaches. They have an office next to where the where the first team managers or the, the first team coaches are. It was called a player liaison room, and that is where they had they have these people who sorted everything out for them. So they sorted now the car insurance, the mortgages, everything. I mean, you just wouldn't believe it. And they moved that away from the coaches because they found that the players were going to them instead of coming to the to the coaching. And and really, sometimes you can think, well, that that is the the welfare is sorting everything out for them, but it isn't really. What what Ollie did 
was he made it a warm place to work in again. And he made people want to work there. And he made it uh, an appealing place to stay. And if you didn't want to stay there, then, you know, you can go. And, and I think that that, um, that was the most valuable thing about player welfare that, that he did, was make it somewhere that people enjoyed coming to work again. Not easy. You know, you don't need to make the standards at Manchester United uh, any higher because it's clear what they all are. The same with um, Sean Dyche. He talked about a really high-profile player that came to Burnley um, who'd, who, you know, he rang up other managers up who said, you know, I wouldn't sign him if I were you. He's trouble, blah, blah, blah. And so when he came to talk to him about signing for Burnley, he said to him, look, you know, there's no dramas here. If you're looking for a fight, if you're looking for a drama, you won't get it here. So if you want to stay, look, these are the training facilities. This is the way we do things. If you want to stay, great. If you don't like it, though, you're always welcome to go um, and we'll help you leave. And, and, and that player went on and did really, really well for him and, and still speaks really highly of him. Um, and, and I think that the, the welfare of the players can be, when the, and, and the welfare of any of us when we talk about workplace is, uh, first of all, do you feel cared about? Do you feel like the people that are, you know, are they bother about you? Um, do they want to help you improve? Um, and then they want to know with those things, and then is this going to be successful? But I'd say that's probably the third thing. They want to know, do you care about them? Can you help them improve? And then will they want to be successful? And I think the best managers, the best leaders anywhere, that's what they do for, for long-term sustained success. And that's what, You've got managers that we spoke to, like um, like Solskjaer, like David Moyes at West Ham, or like um, Sean Dyche at, at uh, Burnley. That's what they do. That's what they do really well. Um, and it's not, you know, you might get somebody, you might go in and say, right, work hard or you're out, that's it. You know, and a short term, for, for 20 matches, you might get the result you want. But over a season, you're unlikely to get that. Um so, uh, yeah, I think that's what the biggest thing about player welfare was. And you, you hear Mickey talk and he talks about, I mean, I've heard him saying it just when there's been me and him. He said, look, I love these players. I, I want to make them better. I want to make them better. I want to help them get better. And they can feel that. And he says that in the way he speaks to them. And that's why people like playing for him. Do you think um, football is a particularly challenging environment to foster that sort of that sort of attitude, that sort of feeling, because it is so high-pressured and it is so, I suppose it's kind of cutthroat, isn't it? It's 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 win at all costs and results are expensive and, and you know, defeat is kind of, you know, hard to quantify, particularly in nowadays when, you know, you only have to lose a couple of games and clubs are in crisis. So did you find from speaking to the managers that it was a, an environment that was that was tough to handle from that perspective. Yeah, I think it's quite transient as well. Um, you, you can get really close to people and then they go. Um, so I think that makes it, it does add a bit of skepticism and a bit of coldness about about some of it. But certainly the coaching staff is that we spoke coaching staff that we spoke to were very close, and that's the team around those people. But yeah, it is difficult, I think, because they make those, um, they have quite transient lifestyles, which which a lot of people don't uh, appreciate, you know, when they talk about loyalty and things like that. Well, football clubs don't show any loyalty to players who aren't good enough. Um, and in the same way, when players get to a point where they want to leave and best themselves, they, they often look, look elsewhere as well. 
Um, so it is difficult, and that's why in a, a lot of clubs will put people on staggered two-year contracts. So you always have people who are remaining who can keep that culture going where they're well run. Um, it's been difficult with the pandemic because there's been such uncertainty about things. But um, yeah, but it, it it can be really difficult. I think what it comes down to is you need a really quick, easy way of communicating your your values and your beliefs as a manager and as a club. And you need to recruit players that will buy into that. And if you don't do that, then that's where you get things wrong. If you get it right, then you'll get people that form tight knit teams really quickly. Yeah, I think that's that's I think that's probably key across all workplaces, isn't it? Really, and I think people during the pandemic have started maybe to think a little bit more about how they create a positive work environment and about what it actually means to be in a work environment. And I think you know, people have reflected and, 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 and you'd always see those things that you spend X amount of percent of your life in work more than you do doing your hobbies or whatever it might be. And so it's really important to be in a, a positive, cared, caring, trustworthy environment when you go into work every day. One of the things I thought was, is always interesting about managers and you, you referenced David Moyes there and, and, and um, Sam Allardyce and, and to a degree, Mickey Mellon as well. Managers obviously will have played in different areas of football, and there are some managers who will manage across multiple areas. And Aldice is a, a good example of that. And Ferguson is probably the the apex, really, of, of that type of conversation in terms of the way that the football has changed within within the, the you know in terms of behaviours and environments and attitudes. How much has it changed? Like I know we all think about the way football is now compared to 25, 30, 40 years ago, but is it is there has been as much a change within football as there is perceived to have been on the outside? I think so. I think internally, um, the people expect to be treated in a in a um, in a more um, uh, considerate way than, than than perhaps they were before. Um, that old culture of you can just scream and shout at people. Um, I, I don't think is really there anymore because you can get from an HR point of view, you can have you know complaints or things put. And if if you, if you seem to be over the top or, or bullying of, of people, and I suppose that they, they could consider that. So that's had to change. People have had to change the, the, the ways there, and the best managers have done it um, and, and found ways of communicating themselves in a better in a, in a better way than than um, doing something which is which is seen to be intimidating. So I think it definitely has changed. Yeah, I would say it's changed in that respect. And um, for the for the people who have adapted well, it's it's been successful. For those that haven't been able to do that, then obviously they're not they're not managing anymore. Um, but I, sometimes there's a misconception about people um, that that people can be seen as shouting. You know, somebody like Neil Warnock, for example. Neil Warnock's players will run through a brick wall for him because, yeah, you know, you will see clips of him in a, in a dressing room shouting and swearing and getting in players' faces and all that. But it, he does that with a sense of care as well, you know, and I've spoke to um, uh, people that have played for him and he uh, he, he takes them in like uh, his, his children, I think, and, and, cre- and creates a circumstance where whatever he, he can say whatever he wants to them because they know it's coming from the right place and, and, and that place is improving them rather than, than um, being one that's trying to embarrass them or, or humiliate them. 
I love that you've gone with uh, with Warnock there. I can tell. I, I can even. I can't see him, but I can almost feel how happy the 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 pub is. And it, look at his little face. He loves Warnock. He loves Warnock. Does our aunt? He loves. But with Warnock, though, I think it was um, it was always funny because he was described as he started to be described as just like dinosaur, and then I think people put that Pep Guardiola video next to his to try and take the piss out of him, and then went actually. They're talking about exactly the same thing, just in a bit of a different way. And I, I just generally think he's one of the funniest people I've ever ever come across. He gets his Middlesbrough team to go on a tour of Plymouth because he lives in Plymouth for pre-season. <laughs> it's wow. fantastic. I like gets them all down to his for a barbecue in pre-season because he lives around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Um, one of the things that, that, that managers talk a lot about about Phil and, and, and something that you talk about in the book a lot is, is quick wins. What do you mean by a, by a quick win? Yeah, so a, a quick win is something that, um, so you've got your overall vision and you've got your long-term uh, goals. And then a quick win is something that just gets people to see um, a snippet of it and gets you that success. So um, I, I termed it as three things. So it needs to be achievable, uh, important and manageable. So achievable in that you can you can do it quickly. So one of the things that you know really quick when Mickey did was he sorted out the divots on the training ground. He went to the fellow who did the training ground and said, "Look, that's not good enough. You need to sort the training ground out." So when we come out, it's a it's a pitch suitable for a professional team, not in the state that it was in. Uh, it needs to be important so that the other people around it can see it. So that example there is, is an example. It, it was important to them for the quality of the training. And then it needs to be manageable, so something you can actually achieve, um, and something that is possible to do within within the time frame that you you want to. So another example would be um, like David Moyes talked with the West Ham team and said, um, you know, you, you you're not running enough. Your stats compared to the other teams are not as high in terms of the ground that you are covering. And if you don't run higher, then you'll go down and. Uh, you'll be stuffed and I'll be stuffed as well. So we need to work out a way that we can get you fitter so that your running can improve. So that's what they set about doing straight away. Um, and they did that and they've improved the, they've improved the running stats very quickly. But that's, that was a, a really quick, quick way of doing it. So quick wins are things that, that gain you impetus really without, um, and there's a lot, of, we talk a lot in the book about trying to do too much in your first 100 days. So quick wins get you impetus, but don't, um, set your stall out that you can't go back from, you know, to make you so you, so you avoid you making a mistake. It's just something that is very quick, quick turnaround that gets you gets you going in the, in, the, in the right direction with some objective information. Really, it buys you time, doesn't it, as well, to put in the groundwork for the things that are going to take more time as well, doesn't it? Really, that you've you've got people on side. The thing that I thought straight away, Phil, was when um, Mark and Nicola first took over the club. I remember very early on that they put the new facilities in the place for the disabled supporters down the front of the ground that I think had a long time people had been miffed by the fact that the people, the supporters in the wheelchair and their, their carers were having to sit in the rain and they'd go around and hand out brollies to them. Mm. And they very quickly put the, the, like the little dugout things, didn't they, in the, in the stand. Mm. You thought that's like, I mean, that's just like a, the right thing to do, but it was also something that was very easy to do, as you say. And and then it, it was a statement of intent of what their kind of ideals were around running the football club. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and, and when we got relegated away to Plymouth and going in amongst the fans and talking to them again, that's that's a quick win and that you don't need to spend a lot of money to do that as well. You can just go and actually speak to people and then those people in that community will tell other people that they spoke to them and, and then that creates a positive ripple effect amongst the amongst the people you're trying to to affect and get um, some um, some emotional buy-in straight straight away. In the in the sort of last 18 months, Phil, obviously the pandemic has been huge on on, on everybody's lives, but we've all kind of seen throughout the, the impact it's had on schools and it's been a big discussion point around the impact that it's had on young people's education and on their, their mental health and, 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 and on a whole facet of different things. How challenging has, has, has your last 18 months been then as a, you know, a head teacher of a school? Um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. To be honest, I've probably, a lot of it I've, 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 I've noticed after it's finished. So the, the end, when the summer holidays began, I just found I was exhausted um, after it. It's been, it's been very different. It's been very eclectic. It's moved um, quickly. Um, but we try to sort of stay one step ahead um, a lot of the time. So you can... We could predict what was going to happen, you know, with school closures in, in January, with testing coming along, uh, with having to send children home. So we tried to buy ourselves time by producing things that were ready. So a plan for testing, letters that we're going to uh, talk about bubbles that were, were, were being affected by kids being sent home. Um, and then it, it, the hardest thing, I think, sometimes um, is dealing with the when you're tired, and when you've put a lot of effort into something you've never done before, like like setting up a testing centre, and then you have irate people, you know, often the parents shouting down the phone at you, and probably a couple of situations that I would never usually do, which is kind of shout back at them and say, "Well, what would you do then? How are you going to get all these kids in, test them in in within this time, and then and then try and avoid them being in contact with any other students?" Um, yeah, and yeah, so I think that's probably been where where the stress has come through, and also my family as well more because you you're out the home more and you're having you're constantly having to work because you don't know what's going to happen next, and sometimes you might be getting that email through at ten o'clock at night saying my child's just had a positive test, so then you're on the your computer till one o'clock in the morning looking at where they've been sitting, who the friends are, and then sending an email out that you hope they get by the morning so that they don't come into school. Um, so that it's been it's been challenging in that respect, but um, I, I, I feel like there's an awful lot of positives in terms of the way schools and, and education has pulled together to get through it, um, and I think it's really shown how um, all, all, all the capacity of schools to overcome anything that's thrown in the way. So um, it's yeah, really positive, um, but but at the same time, it's been uh, it's certainly been a challenge. I think it's demonstrated for a lot of a lot of places um, how adaptable and dynamic the the, the the environments can be to to sort of as you say kind of change when when and, and things can change very quickly and will change a few different times in the same day and in in some regards. So I think it's yeah I think all round I think people in in lots of different sectors and and teaching is definitely one of them of of you know, done themselves proud really to show that the you know what they can and can achieve when when people sort of pull in the right direction. 
I think what's what's one of the things that has come out of the pandemic is people's awareness of maintaining their own mental health and, and looking after themselves. And you talked earlier, Phil, about work-life balance with the PE departments at the school that you were working at. How have you managed that side of things in your mental health whilst also, you know, keeping everything ticking over, looking after your staff and and, and, and all of that type of thing? Um yeah, I mean, I, I think when it, like at Christmas time, it was it was really hard. I remember everyone else had gone home, and I was just feeling like, you know, right, uh, this is this has been intense. Um, I, I, I suppose exercise. I mean, I like the N- the NHS has got the five um, things for positive well being, which is you know things like making sure you've got good connections and networks with people, keeping those things going, whether it's online or in person, um, trying to to have different interest exercise going for runs um, having other things like just watching the football at the weekend. Um, yeah. So things like that, really, I've, I've just tried to make sure that I've got, I've been around positive people um, so that, so that you can keep yourself going. And sometimes it's just people to offload with as well, to try and uh, make sure that you've got, you've got that outlet. I mean, it, it's very hard. My wife's probably had it much worse than I have because she's had to be stuck at home with the, with the children when they've had to isolate, so literally not allowed out of the house. Um, for I think we've had ten periods between the three kids of, of isolating, uh, and then we've had a couple where my son had it and then I had it, so we had to isolate then. So that's really tough, you know. Being in a really fast-paced work environment where you've got to think all the time, it you know it, it's 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 challenging, but at the same time, it's it, it's also testing you. You know what can you what what can you do? How can you change the situation? So it's a lot of problem solving. So I think the frustration with people who were who were who were stuck in with with children who and when you can't get out that that that's been more difficult than I'd say my situation. So, um, yeah, that that's definitely been the case. But certainly, for the the NHS's five um, tips for well-being are really worth looking at if you've not seen them. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Phil Denton. And I'm going to get straight into it. Mm. Obviously, you and I did this interview just a few weeks ago. What were your kind of biggest takeaways? What did you learn? Was there anything that you got from Phil that was kind of on top of and different from from what was in the book? Uh, maybe the taking a chance on your job, um, mm-hmm. kind of uh, looking for a different opportunity. If you are in that environment of, you know, I'm not enjoying, not even that he wasn't enjoying it, but it, it just wasn't really stimulating or anything like that. And he took a chance, and mm-hmm. it's turned out to be one of the best things he's ever done. And then obviously when we asked him about going to Saudi Arabia after like a year of, years <laughs> worth of teaching, he was, um, again, it's just a huge chance, but it was a great opportunity for mm. him. And he seems to have learned so much from from that. And yeah, I think he was just a really nice guy to, to speak to and a very intelligent. And it was just a completely, you know, when you read some things, I think you often find like little pictures online and with like quotes and stuff. And it like kind of reframes what you what you think and mm. how you think about it and I think that's what this book does. It kind of re reframes the way you would go about it. Yeah. And it almost breaks it, at some point it almost breaks it down to like, you know, when you have to write like how to make a cup of tea. Yeah. You yeah, start yeah. with plugging it in, blah, blah, and it And it breaks it what down. What are you plugging in? Well, the kettle. Oh, the kettle. The kettle. Oh, sorry, <laughs> Come on. Fucking now. <laughs> you have to. Um, you have I, don't to know, I don't know what type yeah. of it. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> so you have to do all that. So it breaks it down so easily. Yeah. And then you're like, what? Why was this ever hard? Yeah. Like this is this is. Really but I think good. lots of those things are you break them down the, into their component parts, yeah. 
and it's like that thing of when you have you know when when you remember doing like big essays at school mm. or you were doing big pieces of work or something that you know you got oh i've got loads and loads yeah rather than think about it in it's in the whole think about it in it in its component parts and it makes it considerably easier to kind of overcome yeah. Um, well, I think we forget, I think we forget to do that. I think at some point we just go, yeah. "Oh, this this must." Because think about the end game yeah, rather than about the yeah, actually about getting it. Uh, so, and then obviously he speaks to, you know, the people he's speaking to is like Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, Mark, yeah, in, in the cups, uh, Mark Palios and Sam Allardyce and Sean Dyche, and you're thinking that's a it's a big mix of of people, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, really, yeah. they're all different kinds of characters, and they're all very big ones as well. Mm. Particularly Sam Allardyce, yeah. and you're listening to someone who. Most people would probably go, oh, you know, he's a dinosaur, he's this, he's that. Mm. And you actually listen, you read what he's what he's talking about, and you're going, well, hang on, there's a bit more thought in this rather than, oh, we'll kick it 60 yards away from our goal. Yeah. It's actually, oh, no, I need people to buy into this. And that's, I think that's what's the main thing about it. It's all about people. Yeah. So I was listening to them talk the other night, and the value that they have on the, the people that are in mm. organizations and in their teams and, and, and in schools, it's so easy to translate it into workplaces oh, as well. Um, it's, it's, it's unbelievable because they're the most important part of people purpose. It's it's fun. It's fantastic. Well, they always talk about, don't they, people like business leaders and stuff, about the most important part of your business is the people yeah. within your business. And that's that's obviously true. And, it, and the same, obviously, would apply to football. I mean, you only have to look. I mean, we're, without getting into the whole charade, the whole Ronaldo thing coming back to Man United mm. was apparently very influenced by a phone call from Sir Alex Ferguson. And you would imagine that his, him still being in some capacity at the club, and there being that connection, being a former teammate in charge, that's obviously swayed him. I mean, that, the the half a million pound a week probably helped as well. Like, but well, you know, it's just a nice sweetener, isn't it? That's it, little cherry on top. Yeah, you know, take it or leave it. Um, <laughs> but I think it it shows, doesn't it? You build those relationships with people. I'll play for free if you want. Yeah. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but, it, you are completely right. Yeah. And I think it comes down to. I think we obviously picked the theme leadership for for this episode, and that is obviously a lot of what the book is about. And then when it comes to managing people, and when it comes to providing an environment in which people can thrive and express themselves, that all comes down to leadership, and it comes yeah. down to what you perceive to be a leader. And I think we've had maybe for in this country, I don't know about elsewhere. We've we've never lived elsewhere, but I think there's been an idea of what a leader is. Maybe, maybe, probably inspired by Winston Churchill, and 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 you know that kind of big, yeah. you know, and and then you think of in football teams, you know, the likes of John Terry and Roy Keane, and you know, and people like that, Graham Souness, you know, you've you've got to be hard to be a leader. Oh yeah, yeah. and it becomes yeah. at that point less about your relationships with people; it's more about you know driving from the front. Yeah, whereas I think nowadays we maybe look at a little bit more about managing down rather than, than managing up so to speak absolutely and i think you know also you talk about like previous examples and stuff i think for a lot of it become i mean you look at like the office and stuff like yeah the leadership is quite funny yeah, yeah as yeah. well isn't yeah. it because you're like that's someone who's someone who's not wearing it comfortably yeah yeah leadership's quite funny and you're looking at it and you're going well i see that all the time and that's basically you, you look at it and go, oh God, he's like a little bit of a David Brent character and you get compared to it all the time if you, if you like that type of leader. I really uh, hope that doesn't happen to me, anyway. <laughs> well, stop dancing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think for for the large part, you know, 
people like to take the piss out of bosses and stuff like that but yeah that's probably because they're quite removed and it's quite a weird situation you find yourself in because you can't sometimes you can't really be like really good mates because you've got to like yeah. enforce policies and, and and the like so difficult conversations come up and in the book it, it it talks about motivation which is a really important point because you you've got You've got to you've got to get people motivated. You've got mm. to find out what motivates them. What makes them tick? Um, and obviously, the example in the book is is, is Sean Sean Dyche basically struggled with understanding why this player wanted a Ferrari and didn't want to win the championship or didn't want to win three points. So yeah. you're like, well, okay, well, and he kind of learned how to use that to his advantage. So if the guy turned around and said, "Oh, look, I want a Ferrari," and well, I'll get you a Ferrari, but you're gonna have to play well. So yeah. it works both ways. So you can only drive at home if we win. Yeah. If we lose, you're in the Fiat Punto. <laughs> and everyone's going to know that you're a dick. <laughs> in the club, Chinky Gento. Yeah. But I, I think, I think obviously, with regards to, to mental health and, 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 you know, one of the reasons we chose leadership as the theme and for obvious reason, with, with the work that, it, that, that Phil's doing in the schools and we were talking about the stuff with Chris Kirkland before and I think it's kind of a similar sort of theme and... and, and motivation for us doing this podcast is to try and sort of reframe those conversations to make people look at things differently and to do that from a young age is obviously the ideal scenario in terms of if you learn it young you'll take it into sort of your adult life and take it into later things that you do and different dealings and I think what we have seen with regards to the way that footballers are certainly treated and the way that people talk about the way footballers are treated is what some people probably say maybe sort of lighter touch or softer touch but I think, as you say, it's about motivation. Mm. And people won't be motivated if you treat them like shit. Yeah, I think I think in football you can see a bit of a change in the way. Certainly, a lot of managers are, are leading those players. Yeah. They're giving them time to, to get used to things. You know, like you know, Rashford's come back from... I know he's injured, but like Rashford's had all that support around him. Yeah, same all, with Saka. Yeah, all of his teammates. And, and it seems to... And it goes on to the fans as well. I mean, yeah. Zach has walked onto loads of pitches and got like rounds of applause and stuff. It's brilliant, it's isn't it? It's absolutely heartwarming. It's, it's it's fantastic. Wouldn't have got that years ago. We, no. We've just viewed it in a completely different way. Yeah. Um, it was like um, at that Man United-Newcastle game on Saturday, they did take a knee hmm. beforehand. And as they went to take the knee, everyone went down and Sean Longstaff booted the ball because he'd forgotten they were taking the knee. But... It coincided with the guy who was doing the announcements saying, number seven, Cristiano Ronaldo. And so there was like a cheer for Ronaldo's name getting read out. But everyone was kind of like, oh, we're doing the knee. And then and then Ronaldo was laughing at Sean Longstaff. And then because everyone started cheering for the Ronaldo thing, they carried it on for the knee. Because now what people have realised is if you just sit and respectfully acknowledge it, people who don't respect it because they're dickheads will boo. So you've just got to make the first noise. And I think that has come a lot of it on the back of people recognising the effect that it has on people, on Mm. other people. Mm. And so instead of being like, oh, isn't that awful? What's happening to them? It's people taking positive action and people leading on it from the front. And that's come from footballers leading and being like, no, we're going to use our voice for better things here. And I think, as you say, it comes full circle, doesn't it? Because it then influences the people that are that are around the game as well. And I think, I mean, we've sat in, we probably would have sat in a number of different, um, like, training modules and, and, and stuff like that where you would li- you would see these models used, like smart goals and, and, mm. and the like. 
and you would have just switched off. Yeah. But because it because like us, it's related to football, it's so much easier to follow. Yeah. And even, it it's not got like all these like oh dressing room behind like behind the dressing room secret and stuff yeah, like that yeah. like it's good but there isn't a secret no, is there? There, there isn't and it's not it's nothing to do with that it's just like this is what football managers do and it just makes it interesting it makes it much more easier to follow which is strange yeah. but it, it's really effective but I think and it, actually the awards the, the book's up for an award I, I can't remember what award it's up for but it's up for an award because it's one of the first um, books to have used like so like obviously Toyota is like a big inspiration in the mm. book it's one of the first books to kind of really understand that that culture, yeah, and use it and apply it into mm-hmm. other areas. But it's interesting that, isn't it? Because I think when we think about football, particularly in this country, for a long time, it was very of the opinion of itself of we don't need to learn anything from anybody else. We we know what we're doing. Sod off. I'm not listening to you. And then as the years have gone on, I think Allardyce is a really good example of someone who took things from other parts of life mm-hmm. and other sports and brought them into football. Um, who who was it who um, who had it was Southampton got what's his face Sir Clive Woodward, oh, Clive Woodward yeah. worked at the club didn't yeah. he and I think that was part of was bringing across what they'd done at England rugby into into the club so I think it's it's become a fashionable thing almost not fashionable you know people have seen it's effective that you can learn things from other environments and bring them into your environment because as you say it's all about people yeah but I you think know the, the 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 technical sides of it will take care of itself yeah. to a degree because you're doing it every day Southgate's it's all about people a, in it. a lot of like nfl stuff as well i think he went and yeah had a look around teams there as well so it, it, it really is um really is good to to see that football just isn't that insular thing that yeah. many people think it is yeah it's actually quite broad and and with with mickey mellon you know you hear him speak and he, he got asked the question you know was your managerial style change he goes yeah it changes all the time yeah uh, like you know when it first starts it was completely different to what it is now yeah. and it's just from you have to be learning. malleable yeah it's just from learning and experience and we talked about alex ferguson before hugely malleable mm-hmm. adapting to mm-hmm. different cultures and you think mickey's been manager for like 10 years now mm-hmm. and you look at what the game would have been like 10 years ago to what it's like now changes so fast you have to be able to adapt and keep up don't you absolutely and you know the work that phil did on this and the work he does in his school it's exemplary really and it is his school taglines to be the to be a world-class school Mm -hmm. um and if he goes keeps coming along here top 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 school (laughs) yeah if he keeps going along here he he will be because he clearly cares about looking after yeah the, the people in that school so it's thinking about things in a different way isn't and, it in terms that's, of that's not just the kids that's the staff as well yeah it's getting them involved you look after the people and the people will look after everything else mm. and i think that's kind of that's that's what i kind of took away from what phil was saying was Absolutely. that uh, you know it's 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 less about top down you create an environment for everybody else mm-hmm. is that you ask the people what they want you give it to them to you know as much as you can do create an environment they feel comfortable and then they will go on and and do everything else that you want to achieve. Mm. And I think, as you say, empowering people and inspiring people and making people feel happy and comfortable in their workplaces is probably like the biggest takeaway, really, from from what we were talking about with Phil. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was. Um, we obviously mentioned before the episode, Ant, that we've got a copy of The First 100 Days signed by Phil and by Mickey. Mm, we have. We have. We have. We have. Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want it? Because uh, if you do want it, we're going to be putting a competition on Twitter. Our handle is at Mark underscore man. So we'll, what you'll need to do to follow is give us a follow, which you probably already do, because yeah. it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and then hit us with a little 
retweet of that tweet. Yeah. And the winner will be announced on the show on Friday. Yeah, and we'll get a sent to you. And, we will. Uh, you can enjoy. You can enjoy. Maybe we'll, if you're a Trammy fan, we'll meet you at the ground and give it to you in person. That'll be a big moment for you, I'm sure. It could, oh, well, to meet us. To meet living legends, <laughs> broadcasting royalty. <laughs> um, I'm going to just point your listeners in the direction of a couple of places that if you want to go to talk, obviously we, we always try and give you something so that you can take that away. And, and uh, the Samaritans are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you do need to talk anything urgent, then they're always the place to go. That's 116123. And the Calm Zone equally has a phone line, which is available 5 p.m. to midnight. And that's 0800 And thank you very much for your time today, mate. Not a problem. Always a pleasure, isn't it? It's oh, good I, to be back. It is. It's good to be back. I couldn't <laughs> think of any song that was, there's loads of them, but I couldn't think of any of them. Um, listeners, we'll be back again on Friday with our Friday football show. Mm-hmm. where we'll be talking about football. Yeah, football, football, more bloody football. Oh, all the football, yeah. eh? I'm thinking of that David Mitchell yeah. thing. Yeah. Football. Football. <laughs> There's the football. It's gonna Anyway, um, but before we finish off, remember that the purpose of Man Marking is to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. We've obviously started that conversation today, but we're asking you to keep it going. Make sure you talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues, as we've talked about today, even talk to strangers, but most important of all, remember to listen, because listening could save a life. Thanks to you for listening today, and we'll be back again on Friday. Yeah, so uh, our quiz is basically how well do you know Mickey Mellon, your, your, your co-author um, and the man you met in a Stevenage gym. Um, so we got a few questions. I think there's eight in total. Um, and I think I'll kick us off and then Danny will come in with the next one. So we'll see how well you know him. And hopefully he's going to listen to this. He might give you a few uh, a few pointers on the way to work one morning. You never know. <laughs> right, okay. So when is Mickey Mellon's birthday? Oh, he's, str- he's struggling already. Uh, oh, I don't know. I know I do. I know I do. It is the 18th of March. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Okay, so question number two: What was the first team that Mickey played for? Oh, right. I know he was a youth player at Hearts. Um, does that count, or is it a professional team? We'll go professional team. First professional. Right, first professional team. Uh, he went to Bristol City. That's the one. Yeah, we're off and running now. We're flying. Trammy Rovers once used to pay um, money for players. Uh, we signed Mickey Mellon. Do you know how much we signed him for? Oh, I think he went to. I think he went to Burnley for four hundred. Did he come to us for two fifty? It's close. It is close. It's 300. Oh, there you go. There you go. 300 gram for a player now. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was the 90s, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> things we're, were happening. We're the only club whose transfer fees have gotten lower since the yeah. 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Inverse Man City. Yeah. Um, okay, who was the last club that Mickey played for as a player? Is it Lancaster? Correct. Correct. Right. Right, okay. So according to Wikipedia, so if anyone out there 
is going to have a go at me about cup goals or whatever. According to Wikipedia, how many goals did Mickey Mellon score for Tramia Rovers? 38. Th 38? Is that too many? Is that too many? That's a lot too many. Oh, 27. <laughs> Six. Six. Six, oh, apparently. I was, I was actually sat with, in the... Uh, with me and uh, Hodge and Mickey went for a, for a meal and uh, he was... Uh, I was talking about the last time I was at the Britannia and I said that was a great game. And it was brilliant. I remember Neville Southall sitting down and Trammy won 3-0 and then Kelly scored. I said it was brilliant. Now, did you play it? I said, did you play in that game? Yeah, playing it. I scored in it. So we had to get the video out. We had to, We were searching YouTube for about 45 minutes to find this goal and like, third. <laughs> so, show uh, my, my knowledge up in front of me. But one of those goals was at the Britannia Stadium against Stoke City. Who was Mickey Mellon's first sign in the Tramia? Yeah, I'm struggling with this one, as you can tell. Um, is it, it, was, it wasn't Andy Mangan, was it? Apparently so. It was. was. Yeah, there was a... There was a weird period with Andy Mangan where he signed under Brabin and then for some reason we let him go back to Shrewsbury. Yeah. Mickey, Mickey signed him and then Mickey left his job at Shrewsbury to come to Tramia and uh, decided to bring Andy Mangan back. So when you're looking for a quick win, bring the guy in who everyone loves, pretty much. Yeah, that was all really weird, wasn't it? He, he left for like a month or so and then came back again, didn't he? Like he'd gone on holiday. Yeah. Okay, so Mickey's first game as Tramia manager was against Wrexham. It was a 2-0 win. Do you know the goal scorers in that 2-0 win? I'll give you this if you get one of them, actually. Uh, Richie Sutton and Andy Cook. Okay, yeah, I'll give you that because it apparently officially went down as a own goal by the keeper, but I think that's harsh on Richie Sutton. Oh, yeah. Okay, so final question. And uh, it, this is a bit of a reference that, that we seem to throw about a lot in our group, and I've never really actually thought... Has anybody else got any memory of this happening? But but we're a big fan of Mickey saying this. So ahead of the Tramia versus Milton Keynes game in uh, 2019 in League Two, the uh, the game where Connor Jennings scored at the end to win two one. Who did Mickey Mellon refer to as being very educated? Uh, very educated. Uh, was it? Um... Well, Jeff Hughes had left at that point, hadn't he? He left in League Two, left after the conference. Um, if, so... it's a, if it's a, a clue, it wasn't. It wasn't one person. Oh, uh, uh, Cook and Norwood. No, it was the crowd. You referred to the Tramia crowd as a very educated crowd. Right, right. I really yeah. had to try hard to refrain from doing the accents whilst I said that. Well, that's um, that's everything, mate. Thank you so much for your oh, time. Thank you. It's been very, very enjoyable. Oh, good, good. And if you, if you let us know, I mean, I speak to Mickey quite a bit, so if you haven't to see if I can get him on, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, speak, I'll, I'll be speaking him on uh, Thursday, I think, so I can give him, ask him if he'd, if he'd mind coming on. Yeah, and, absolutely. I was going to be modest and say, oh, no, don't worry about it, Phil, but yeah, please ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Phil.